Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the National Housing Strategy in Canada, which is a 10-year, $82 billion plan that was launched in 2017. And it has been playing a pretty big role in actually getting housing built lately with the aim of providing more people in Canada with access to safe, affordable, and inclusive housing. My name is Daniel Foch, and I am joined here in studio by... Who is it? It's me. Yeah. I know. I tried to get people excited that it might be somebody else, but <laughs> you're pretty excited. They're not excited to hear me, I guess, after 160 plus episodes. Maybe not. But yeah, it's me, Nick Hill, back in the studio with Dan. And again, talking about the national housing strategy today, uh, which includes a range of complementary programs and initiatives that address the diverse needs across the entire housing continuum that we have here. It's anchored in the National Housing Strategy Act, which we'll look at, which requires the strategy consider the key principles of human rights-based approaching approach, sorry, to housing. Yeah, and I think, you know, the two main opportunities in Canadian real estate right now both sort of stem from this. One is five units and above, which comes from, you've heard us talk millions of times on the show about this, CMHC, MLI Select. And we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. And then the other one comes four units and below, which we're starting to see happening as a a result of a lot of the upzoning where, you know, those aren't subject to development charges. And so they get a little bit of an arbitrage against developers, large scale developers, where they don't have to pay DCs. That's like a $60,000 advantage that you have against somebody building a high rise right beside you in some of these cities. Yeah. It makes it a lot more attractive for people kind of jumping into the space that, that would, you know, $60,000 in DCs could really mess up the the returns on a project. For sure. And I know you were on this, on the call with the team today about some of the MLI select deals. And a lot of these smaller MLI select deals are having trouble because, you know, people who have never developed before their their covenant or net worth doesn't always get content, uh, considered to like 100%. Yeah, it's not even just covenant and net worth. That plays a role, but it's also experience and track record. So even if you do hit that net worth component, right, if you need $10 million in financing, you need to be able to show $2.5 million in net worth. That is is actually easier for a lot of people versus the level of experience that CMHC wants to see for some of these projects. Yeah, and so that's where you kind of get into the smaller incremental stuff, which uh-huh. is to build the experience yeah. and still get an advantage of being a housing creator in today's market. For so, sure. Yeah. So to just get back to what it says on the National Housing Act, uh, Government of Canada website, through the strategy, the goal is to reduce or eliminate the housing need for 540,000 households and create 160,000 new housing units, renew and repair 300,000 homes and protect and expand 385 community housing units. Additionally, the strategy aims to provide affordability support to 300,000 households through the Canada Housing Benefit. Some big numbers there. Uh, It goes on to say that the strategy also focuses on priority areas such as housing for those in greatest need, community housing, sustainability, indigenous housing, northern housing. We like that one. Uh, Sustainable housing in communities and ensuring a balanced supply of housing. Well, there's a lot of work to do on that front. So join us as we delve into the details on this comprehensive government plan and how we explore 
how it's shaping out and how it's kind of shaping the future of Canadian housing here. So let's dive in, Dan. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about how it shaped the past of Canadian housing as well, because that context is pretty important. So here are the objectives of Canada's national housing strategy. So number one is create new housing supply. Great. I like that. Number two, modernize existing housing. I also like that. Number three, innovation and research. I don't think I have to mention it, but you I'm pretty also into that. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's it, obviously something that's good and, and this is the time in which it is most needed. And actually a guest that we have coming up on the show, I'm looking at his co- a copy of his yeah, book right now, yeah, um, yeah. Gregor Craigie. He, so, so this is really cool. Uh, this book says our crumbling foundation, how we solve Canada's housing crisis. It's written by a journalist from Victoria, BC, Gregor Craigie. He's a CBC or he, he does uh, some talk show hosting yeah. and stuff like that. He's been, and it says how we solve Canada's housing crisis. It also says on the cover here on sale, March 5th, 2024. So I have a physical copy of a book that does not exist yet. Nick. Wow. Look at us. We and I think special. we're going to give some of these, yeah, we're going to give some of these away to our listeners. So this is cool. We're, this is our first uh, book tour podcast experience. Yeah. So, yeah. We've um, got them on the show, what, in the next week or two, yeah. right? Next couple of weeks. Yeah. So more on that, but uh, yeah, there's probably a little bit of overlap, but I'm, I can't well, wait to have him on and see what he has to say. Yeah. About and he, I've read it cause I was yeah. asked to do some commentary on the book before it went to, to press. And, you know, we hear about some of these, these things and it's basically what's wrong. How, how did it, how do we get here and how do we fix it? And so the, to me, you know, that, us as like one of our themes on the show is create value if you want to get value back if you want to create uh, capital appreciation or cash flow you got to create value and the easiest way to do that right now is solve a real problem what's a realist realist problem in in canada right now housing, housing. crisis right yeah. so anyway. yeah so that's a, that's a great place to start in so let's let's go back to the first objective of the uh NHS, that's a National Housing Strategy. Just thought I'd throw a little acronym there because that was a high school in Newmarket as well, Newmarket High School, NHS. Not to be confused with the Newmarket High School, the no. National Housing Strategy. Their first objective is creating new housing supply. Yeah, so let's talk about the initiatives under this supply strategy. So, what would be the details of this? Like, what are some examples of things that would fit under the supply creation goal? For sure. Some of the stuff that they list here is initiatives like national housing co, a national housing co-investment fund, which is very interesting. We've talked a lot about co-investing and funds together and separately on the show before. Uh, affordable housing, the affordable housing innovation fund. Again, another great idea there, which is to provide funding and financing for opportunities for building new affordable housing. They also have programs like the rental construction financing and the federal lands initiative, which encourages the construction of sustainable rental projects. So a lot of familiar stuff here that that's come up on the show a lot before Dan for sure and the other piece is and like this is from my perspective really just uh they're just pointing to the opportunities in the market so the first one is creating new housing and we've talked about this a lot on the show you want to you want to create value you want to uh you want to burr right we hear a lot about burr coming to podcasts in the states the only way you can really do that yep in order to burr you have to create so much incremental value that you can borrow the down payment back out of the property. And the only way to do that in Canada right now is through adding units, right? So rule number one, create units according to the National Housing Act. (laughs) Rule number two, modernize existing housing. Um, So another important aspect is the modernization of of existing housing. So what does this national housing strategy say about this, Nick? 
Yeah, the uh, the National Housing Co-Investment Fund, this is where this comes into play, along with other funding opportunities, supports the renewal and renovation of the existing affordable housing stock. This allows for improvements and upgrades to ensure quality housing for residents. And again, I don't want to get too much into the CMHC MLS Select stuff, but a uh, lot of ties in with this on bringing things, on making things affordable or bringing things up through a renovation process to make them more energy efficient. A lot of that action happening. Yeah, for sure. And the next piece is uh, supporting community housing providers. This one's interesting because, you know, we, we're looking at a community housing provider deal right now that you know, the goal would be to get it to fit into the MLI select box, but it's just like really tough to mm-hmm. get those. Like, you know, if you have uh, rent geared to income or affordable housing, I would say affordable housing is probably one of the least commonly used streams in that MLI select program. Yeah. Right. I think like what are you you're yeah, seeing? Mostly no, environmental, right? Definitely. Yeah. So just very high level. And, and we've been requested to do another full episode on this. So that is in the works. Everybody stay tuned for, for a full episode on MLI select. Uh, if you want to go back and check out the other one, it was, I believe, uh, how to get 95% loan to value on or uh, a 95% mortgage on a multifamily. But to answer your question, yeah, Dan, the out of the three buckets where you can get your points, energy efficiency, affordability, and accessibility, by far the most common one that we see builders use is the energy efficiency. Yeah. And, and so knowing that like that box doesn't, Tech, doesn't technically always fit for the financing side of things for most housing providers or most community housing providers. You know, the NHS allows for for other things for for community housing providers. So what kind of specific resources are available for them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the strategy provides things like technical assistance, tools and funding opportunities to increase the capacity of community housing providers. So there, there's actually incentives here. Initiatives like the Federal Housing Initiative and the Community Housing Transformation Center support these providers in their goal of delivering affordable and inclusive housing. So the next piece is this element of promoting innovation and research. And I actually... The first time, I mean, I know I, I work with the media a lot right now, but the first time I ever did something with the media in regards to real estate was when I was rewarded through this this end of the program. When this is actually funny, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show. So Ooh, yeah, so in um, when I was in university, I was always like really passionate about um, like shipping container housing, yeah, and just adaptive reuse. And uh, a good friend of mine kind of got me into it. And I was just proposing it as a, it's so funny now in hindsight, because like, had I pursued that, I I mean, I don't know if it would have worked the way I wanted it to anyway, but that back then it was like the housing affordability issue was a big challenge. So, and that was in 2017, 2016. But anyway, I was, I was awarded by CMHC and uh, York region for this make rental happen program, as well as um, through a business incubator at the university of Guelph, where we, we both went. And I can say like the opportunities and like the doors that were open for me through that were, you know, was I maybe a little bit better of a business person or better at like figuring out how to capitalize on those opportunities? I probably could have had a much bigger impact. So I would say this is really interesting. And actually we have um, a guy in our course who 
yeah d- does a lot of a lot of work in this space so if you ever need like grant writing or anything like that give us a shout um we'd be happy to connect you but like he knows all of this stuff for the innovation side of things there's a lot of opportunity in like i think that it's pretty evident that we're kind of behind in canada when it comes to construction innovation we we have some of the lowest research and deve- products yeah we have some yeah. of the lowest research and development spending in in the oecd uh as a per, or per capita r&d spending and so and we're our economy is very exposed to housing so naturally if we're going to choose somewhere to spend that r&d spending it's going to be housing and uh and yeah so i guess innovation and research are really vital in shaping the future of housing so what what does the national housing strategy do in regards to that uh they tune in and listen to this podcast because yeah. we've been promoting innovation and research for years now yeah see see we're waiting if you want to send us a grant uh for all the the good work we've done over here we'll take it they also uh the national housing strategy includes programs like the demonstrations initiative and solutions lab which highlight innovation and ideas and uh solutions targeting affordable housing the Collaborative Housing Research Network and the National Housing Strategy Research and Planning Fund support research efforts to guide evidence-based decision-making. They really, they've got long names for every one of these subsidiary they know funds. To, and, they know how to smack yeah. some buzzwords together. Yeah, that's for wow. sure. I'm jealous. Do you yeah, think any consultants go. were harmed <laughs> in the making of these? Uh, They're too well paid here. Uh, yeah, so it, it is interesting, right? Because... Well, people just think about innovation as like physical innovation as well. We have, so we have, we're fortunate enough in the course, we have some, some really cool folks. We'd love to have you there, obviously. But in regards to the grant side, that's one individual who's, who's within the course. And this is what I'm literally learning from our audience, by the way. Like this is, I'm just reiterating stuff to you that I've heard from, from them. We also have um, somebody who's really deeply involved in the panelization of, of housing. Like, so, you know, and they ship basically these sandwich panels for, so it's like semi-modular. Like they think they Mm -hmm. ship walls, right? So to be able to construct faster. But the other piece is non-physical innovation. So like financial innovation, this is something you and I have been discussing a lot with a potential financial partner that, you know, we've been, we've just done a lot of content with and and we've done a lot of... Uh, friend of the show. As yeah, we friend say. of the show for yeah. sure. And so we're really hopefully being able to work on, like the, bi- the big thing from my perspective is if you want to build it, you're a homeowner as is. And I think a lot of listeners on the show are homeowners and, and you've been listening to us and we're, you're like, ah, yeah, you guys keep saying create units, but... I have no money. How and do it's I like, do it? And yeah. it's like, or I'm house poor. And like, don't like, I'm not saying that to chirp because I am that. So like, I <laughs> yeah. get it, you know? Well, but I would love to put an ADU in my yard. You know, yeah. I got a nice lot. I'd love to create, I'd love to be a creative housing creator, have a mortgage helper. There's no financial product. Available exactly. For that. And so, so to have those, to have those innovative physical products, what do we need? We yeah. need those innovative financial products yeah. to be able to support the implementation of yeah. things like putting a laneway suite or a yeah. garden suite or whatever in your backyard or to be able to have a better plan on how to, you know, f- refinish that basement or, or to again add units, more stuff like CMHC's MLI Select, but for different levels of development for, you know, that, that that true citizen developer or that end user that's looking for that, as you said, mortgage helper kind of thing, right? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so one of the things we've wanted to do this for a long time, we've talked about it from an ADU perspective, which I think there's enough people in that space that are really already trying to do the ADU financing. People have reached out to us from the show, people who are already doing it, basement apartments, etc. But it's that detached ADU in a modular basis where we're really hoping to like just I think that if you could just have a one size fits all thing where it's, you know, those things can get popped into your backyard, but they're also financed, Yeah, you know, and it either gets added to your mortgage that to me is that's going to be huge because that's super agile supply you can pop yeah. one of these modular things like the ones that jordan scrinko was posting today yeah. right if that if yeah. that if that was financed at you know 80 or 100 percent be a slam dunk yeah. deal for any yeah. owner right you know the rent's going to cover the cost of it it costs 200 grand to build one of those things and it rents for two thousand bucks one percent rule achieved there yeah you go. there you go yeah and just on that that's not what this episode is about entirely, but we have had a lot of requests to do another full episode on ADUs, laneway suites, garden homes, and we've got some some great guests and some great uh, people that we're working with that'll be out in the next couple couple weeks. So again, stay tuned for that. But Dan, let's get back to this here. The strategy, the national housing strategy, is aiming to achieve some pretty big things in the next few years. Can you walk us through the list of what they've got here? Yeah. So by the year 2027 to 2028, the strategy aims to achieve 540,000 households whose housing need is reduced or eliminated, 160,000 new housing units created, 300,000 homes to be renewed and repaired, 385,000 community housing units protected and expanded by 50,000. So they want to add another 50,000 there to community housing. 300,000 households provided with affordability support through the Canada Housing Benefit and 25% of funding towards the meeting of housing needs of women and their children. Yeah, I mean, those seem like some pretty good goals. Totally agree. And they have another section, and that is addressing housing needs through complementary programs and initiatives. So this is all the other initiatives under the National Housing strategy these are kind of all the funds and stuff that we've been talking about and the capital so the money allocated to each one of them 48.3 billion dollars in new construction repair or renewal of housing stocks that makes up the vast majority of the budget right there almost 50 billion 15 one five fifteen point seven billion dollars in initiatives delivered with provinces and territories. So that'll be parceled out to provinces and territories. Eleven point eleven point one billion in existing community housing programs. Four point one billion reducing chronic homelessness. Four billion in system changes to increase the housing supply. One point nine billion in support for the community housing sector. billion improved homeownership options, 1.2 billion one-time direct support payments to lower income renters. Now we're into the millions, 541 million on data innovation and research. And I think after we take about 250 million of that, Dan, there's there's still about half left. Yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding. We'd settle for a million CMHC if you're listening. And then 63 million in human rights-based approach to housing. So all the way from 50 billion down to essentially 50 million um, we see the budget allocated here yeah I mean it's it's always interesting to get an idea for like how your tax dollars are spent to solve the problems that matter to you and I think that if you're listening to this show you probably like housing is probably something 
that matters to you as a, as a policy issue, I would say. So the next thing that they outline here is priority areas for action. The National Housing Strategy envisions affordable housing for all Canadians, promoting sustainable communities and a thriving economy. It emphasizes six priority areas for action. So number one, housing for those in the greatest need. I think this one, you know, it's pretty rhetorical. We're obviously seeing a growing issue with homelessness in Canada. And Ten cities popping up everywhere. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, for sure. And And so I think... This obviously should be a priority area. There's no no dispu- disputing that. The next ones are community housing, sustainability, indigenous indigenous housing, northern housing, sustainable housing, and communities, and a balanced supply of housing. And the last one actually is fascinating to me because, you know, a lot of people, like, they'll say, oh, you know, you're only building luxury condos. It's like, well, first of all, luxury is just, like, p- purely a branding term. Like, first of all, yeah, the word luxury, I f- the word luxury isn't even luxurious not, anymore. Yeah, yeah, basically <laughs> just means, like, not a purpose-built rental. It just means not horrible yeah. or not bad yeah I, it's basically like builder's grade they yeah. just use the word we were having a laugh about we won't name many names here but uh someone describing a a flat ceiling as a as a luxury item so as a luxury uh, item yeah so the word the poor word luxury has has lost its meaning that is from the latin word luke's no i'm just kidding i don't know that probably is some i don't know i don't know that one you don't know Sorry, that one no, off no, heart, not, eh? uh, i haven't been do- keeping up with my duolingo uh, latin a, lessons it's okay we'll carpe diem our way out of this one anyway. yeah um, <laughs> and uh yeah anyway so getting that housing built like no housing is housing right a unit is a unit and a lot of like a lot of like nimbies will argue with me on this on twitter and i'm not like a, i'm not a yimby by the way like i think that i think that things need to be planned properly but if you if i build a luxury condo and nick moves into it then nick vacates a non-luxury condo that he was living in before and that creates uh, that that makes that unit available for somebody else for someone else kind of working their way up that ladder right yeah it's yeah. almost like what was that nick hill original that you were you called it uh, uh, trickle down economics yeah right? I think, yeah yeah, something yeah like i think that, yeah. that was uh, that was <laughs> it anyway so let's let's look back here on canadian history and like the impact of whether or not that National Housing Act has been successful in creating housing well, before, because yeah. we always hear people c- comparing today to the good old days. The good old, but, it's always the but, good old yeah, days. Yeah, but it's like, you know, it's um, people comparing present day to the 70s, especially when a lot of, a lot of purpose, yeah, and a lot of purposeful a, rentals built during that yeah. period of time, right? Yeah, so let's, let's dive into that, Dan. Time for a little history lesson. Let's look at what the National Housing Act did in the past. This is from the Fraser Institute. It's a composition of Canadian housing starts from 1946 to 1969 versus 1970 to 1975. Yeah, so from 1970 to 1975, 45.8% of housing starts came from the National Housing Act. And the remainder came from the private sector. So mostly through the MERB program. The what program? Maybe say excuse me next time you burp on the show. Good joke. Okay, no, Good joke. So I wrote bad. that one in there for you. <laughs> yeah. So I can't, I can't play. I need a new comedy writer over here. Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> um, new joke writer. Uh, I was going for like, you know, that uh, that um, Volkswagen commercial where they're like, Tiguan. And she's like, bless <laughs> you. you. have to go, Merp. <laughs> I know. I, I, that was my fault. Yeah. Right. I know. I delivered that. Okay. Um, so what is the Merb program? The Merb program. Now, you may have heard about it in a recent CBC article that we've mentioned on the show before, but CMHC examines the 1970s tax shelter as agency seeks solution to the rental crisis program that was aimed at increasing rental construction, but there were reports of abuses. So high level, it was a program that pushed for purpose-built rental housing that was abused. 
please continue. Yeah, I mean, I we'll dive into it. So basically, CMHC was examining this tax shelter from the 1970s as part of its efforts to address the current housing crisis. The tax measure, which was known as the MERB program, provided tax deductions for investors in housing, but was criticized for abuses and lack of oversight. Basically, CMHC suggests reconsidering similar tax policies to promote investment in rental construction that we desperately need. But they also highlighted the need for urgent action to increase housing supply and restore affordability in the country. Yeah, sounds kind of uh, spicy. So what kind of things were in the MERB program that were so exploitable? Right. We, we've heard that it's been abused. So what what existed in there that, that you could even do that? And we're going to take a look at a CMHC study that was commissioned all the way back in 1981. I do love me a little history lesson, Nick. Of um, course. I feel like we kind of bird dogged the audience uh, because we were talking about the true crime episodes yes, before. Yes. But apparently now we're a history show. Well, we did. Uh, when we put that out there, I did get a couple of DMs being saying, yes, please do true crime. Yeah. So yeah, we we'll will get to in. you. Yeah, we yeah. heard those. I do think I, I want to do one on the Reichman family. There's like that. There's a book called Too Big to Fail. So I just have to read it first. That would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll, um, that was Olympia and York, by the way, which is a Toronto based company kind of started as um, a huge developer and owner in Toronto. And then they started expanding to like buying stuff in New York. There was a famous cool. site in New York. Can't remember the name of it now. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, let's get back on track. So the Merb and that's M-U-R-B, by the way. The MERB provision of the income tax allows investors in MERBs to deduct capital cost allowance. That's otherwise known as CCA. So they're able to deduct capital cost allowance losses from their other income for taxation purposes. I guess we have to do a little explainer on CCA now as well, Dan. Oh, we're really going to go down that rabbit hole now, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, so I will start by saying this is obviously out of scope for us, and we will have an accountant back on the show to do this properly. However, from the CRA website, who I would say is qualified to, you know, you can, yeah, you cannot deduct the cost of the property when you calculate your net rental income for the year. So, kind of like a car, right? If you buy a car, you can't just be like, oh, 80 grand off my income. I wish. I'd be buying, I'd be buying nice cars if that was the case. Yeah, yeah. So, you, because the car wears out as an economic life, it depreciates in value. You can, it becomes obsolete over time. So you can deduct that depreciation over a period of X amount of years. And this deduction is called the capital cost allowance. And the same thing exists for a property. And so anytime you're basically putting money in that, where that money almost becomes part of the property, let's call it, it's deducted as depreciation. Yeah, exactly, Dan. I mean, it comes down to how you deduct expenses on a property. So if something has an economic life longer than a year, such as a roof or any other kind of major renovation, you can deduct it as depreciation, not as an expense against income. So it's a difference between CapEx or capital expenditure and OpEx or operational expenditure. And it's worth noting that we've done very thorough accountant-approved breakdown this in our online uh, course and community that you can find at realist.ca. Such a guru in here just pitching his course all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, it is, it's interesting. So, basically, they allowed these investors – and this is where you hear like about a lot of you – know, 
you know, you'll, you'll, you, I'm sure you know somebody and somebody knows somebody whose dad is, is and was a doctor, or lawyer, mom or dad was a doctor, lawyer, and they did this and they now own some, a bunch of apartment buildings because back then you could deduct capital cost allowance losses. So that depreciation that we're referring to, you could deduct that against your personal income. And so high earners who were doctors and lawyers, that's why I use that career as an example, people who have high incomes were, going and building multiplexes with all of their cash as a tax advantage. Amazing. And that's, so that's kind of where they were talking about the, the abuse of it. Right. And, and I don't think it's, it's so much abuse. It's like people are taking the incentive. You're offering them a lot. They're literally doing exactly what you want them to now. What? And it's abuse because they're doing it too much. I think, and we'll get into it, the numbers, but I think it was really just like the, the cost, it ended up really misdistributing wealth. For sure. Right. Like, you know, again, when you hear about that person who's, who's grandparents, you know, their grandmother, grandfather have a portfolio of, Hundreds, hundreds of, of rentals because yeah. they did this because they were doctors, you know, or lawyers. And now it's like, grandma, okay, well, you're, grandpa, you're giving so a huge tax because it's not like a regular person would really have a huge advantage to do. Right. To, right because, exactly. you know, they're, they're not, not making higher income tax bracket. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it, it kind of misdistributed the outcomes, but the incentives obviously work. So prior to 1981, it was estimated that a total of 170,000 MERB units were started in Canada in 1981, approximately. This 1981 is when the study was commissioned by CMHC. That's why I'm saying that. It's not just some arbitrary year that I chose. I would choose 91 because that was the best year. Everyone <laughs> knows that. <laughs> <laughs> approximately 25,000 MERB units were forecasted to be started in that year when the study was commissioned, which would have brought the impact of the program to over 200,000 units during that period of time. Nice. Yeah. And the cost of that MERB provision in terms of tax expenditures for the year, Dan's favorite year when he was born in 1981, (laughs) is estimated to be $67 million. So the tax expenditures associated with the expected 25,000 MERBs that were supposed to or scheduled to start in 1981 on a discounted value basis are estimated to be to be between approximately 50 and $80 million, depending on whatever discount rate is used. The average that average is out to between $2,000 and $3,200 per MERB unit built. So per unit built under that MERB program. Uh, and if we consider the cost per rental unit added, it would likely be nearly double those figures. So while MERBs played a crucial role in the recovery of rental construction in the mid to late 1970s, it was likely that the rental market would have eventually responded to the excess demand on its own, albeit with higher rents. This is the funny part. It's like, ah, eh, it maybe would have, the free market would have done it anyway, but with higher rents. It's like, well, is that like the, like, you know, okay, so your outcome worked. It's just yeah, like yeah. a lot of people got maybe too rich in the process, yeah. right? Like the the main beneficiaries of the MERB provision, this goes on, this is from the executive summary of that CMAC report, was the supply side and was the developer and promoter and investors with high marginal tax rates. So there was evidence that some promoters were potentially overvaluing projects. And then investors who are unfamiliar with real estate matters uh, would purchase the asset solely for the tax shelter aspect without considering the possibility of poor investment prospects due to inflated purchase prices. 
I would argue they probably are fine now. And if they're if you're buying it, if you're buying a, yeah. a, buying a, <laughs> a cash flowing multiplex and you're overpaying a little bit in the seventies, I think you're, you're right. yeah. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a doctor. I gotta just put yeah. my millions of yeah. dollars somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess don't think this, anybody's weeping for that. Yeah, I guess this two hundred unit building will do for now. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's funny. There's a uh, a 2019. So obviously, decades later, there's a 2019 opinion piece titled "Rental Crisis Cries for Return of Tax." Sorry, of investor tax and Incentives. The 45-year-old MERB program harnessed the private sector to deliver many of the affordable rental apartments still in use today. The article discusses the rental housing crisis in Canada and suggests the return of investor tax incentives as a solution. It highlights the success of the MERB program. Which stands for what? I don't even think we've... Multi-unit... We didn't. Wow. We how do yeah, we... It's a great <laughs> acronym, too. It's an actual acronym. It's an acronym, and, and like we just a, made a burping joke yeah. before... Yeah, well, it wasn't a good joke. I get it. It's cool. I might... I might. It might be our first time ever editing something out of the show. No, just kidding. You'll hear it. Multi-unit um, residential building. Yes, yes. Sorry. MERB. Yeah, yeah. So... The current reliance uh, that we have on public sector expenditures, it's just not working. And so the, the article argues that this could really, you know, create kind of like a, I think the pri- the idea is that the private sector kind of has to make some concessions, which we're seeing them. This was in 2019 before things got really out of control and before we started seeing responses happen in 2023, mm-hmm. which is obviously maybe a bit too late. The article argues that a national strategy focusing on encouraging the private sector to deliver rental housing would be more effective and cost efficient than the than what was existing there. Shocker. At that time. It does kind of sound like how CMHC's MLI Select directly benefits developers today through its housing creation incentives, but also by giving housing creators access to a few things. One being the longest amortizations we see in the market, up to fifty years. The highest leverage points, so up to 95% on both loan to value and loan to cost, and tie that in with the lowest interest rates you're going to get, which is the Canada mortgage bond, usually plus 50 or so bips, which is well below the five year fix. So we're at this point, you know, today we're seeing that in the mid to high fours, low fives. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing comes down to incentives, right? So you kind of have to let them win a little if you want them to build. I was recently speaking at ResCon, the Residential Construction Council of Ontario, literally a room full of the biggest builders in Canada, speaking alongside um, the uh, Provincial Housing Minister, Calandra and uh, Olivia Chow, which was it was an honor to, to have that yeah, speaking that opportunity. Awesome. And um, it was tough because I feel like I was kind of mentioning the hard truth uh, about how I felt that we in Canada were heading for a renter's economy. And I as I tend to do, tried to substantiate that with data. And and a lot of builders don't want to build a rental, right? Like mm-hmm. they just, you know, they know they what they do. They don't want to do. be landlords. They want to buy and, and sell. And they're good at building a product yeah. and delivering it. A lot of them will go and buy rentals and they all have portfolios. I mean, they're not uh, hard but done by by any it's, means. It's but usually it's outside a different of the stuff that they're building even, right? It's, it might even be a different asset class in some cases as yeah, well. Yeah, I think, well, I think creating housing well and owning housing well are very different businesses, totally, right? So it's totally. hard to do, like to be fully integrated to that. And I think it's easy as a policymaker to oversimplify that and be like, like, I do think you that the right- it, just keep it. Yeah. I do think that, that the person who built it is the right person to, to keep it, right? Like In some cases, you know, for like sure. They're, yeah. they're a good person to be the landlord. They're like very familiar. Like if something goes wrong, they can be like, I know how hey, to fix this. Who, who built that unit? Yeah. Send him in yeah. to fix it, you know? Like it's kind of, and they do that anyway with Tarion yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Like, or, or any other building warranty, right? So, but, so I have this before and after slide where I show, so I'll do the before and you can do the after. So before, 
a builder builds a unit, an investor bought it. The investor is paying maybe $3,700 per month for the mortgage and someone rented that unit for $3,500 a month. And the investor loses money on a monthly basis for that rental unit to exist. Now that mortgage basically gets spread over 50 years rather than the classic 25 years the investor is buying it with. So the builder builds the unit, the builder keeps the unit, their mortgage payment on that same unit is maybe let's say $3,000 a month as opposed to the 3,700. And they can still rent that same unit for 3,300. And that's based off of CMHC's debt service coverage ratio requirements of 1.1, which means a 10% rate of positive cash flow. Yeah. Oh man, DSCR, my baby. I didn't think you were gonna bring it in here don't, right don't at the think, end. Don't eh? get all sappy on DSCR. Come on. You know how Oxford Dictionary does like a word of the year? That would be mine. <laughs> and Sherwin Williams actually does a paint color of the year. We need an acronym of the year. The Oxford word, by the way, is Riz, the word of the year for twenty twenty three, which is I just learned this when looking it up and writing this episode. Uh widely used word online defined as style, charm, or attractiveness and one's ability to attract a romantic partner. And last time I tried to use Gen Z terminology on the show, it did not go well. I thought bussin' bussin' was taking public transit, so there's that. Yeah, you know what's funny is we actually, we were lucky enough to both know a handsome, a charming, and attractive man Maybe the man name named came Riz. from him. Yeah, he was on our original podcast. He was on the actually. podcast years ago. Yeah, good friend of the show, Riz, if you're listening. This one's for you. And I, yeah, and I say Riz all the time. I mean, you know. I, I know you're probably wondering what it means, and I'm not going to tell you because I haven't been using it right, my Riz. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Sherwin-Williams paint color for 2024 is upward. That's a word that I know. Yes, a.k.a. SW6239, which is usually what I say instead of upward. I'm a very technical guy, which is described as a breezy, blissful blue, the color found when we slow down. Take a breath and allow the mind to clear. Oh, man, I can't wait to paint over some light switches and power outlets with that one. <laughs> yeah, Sherman is definitely the best paint for that purpose. It sticks to everything. Yeah, well, our acronym of the year sticks to everything as well. It is DSCR Ooh. and is the most important thing for you to know this year. It really is. And you really do love a good DSCR, don't you? I feel like 2024 is just the year of the DSCR for me right now because I've been looking at a lot of deals in the States and in basically as a Canadian, the only way that you can finance deals well is through DSCR loans, which is literally just a loan that basically they say as long as it hits our DSCR, which is like a 1.25 there. The, the truth is like the reason that this year is the year is because Deals are, the numbers are so tight on everything. And we're going to go through an amazing report from Cushman and Wakefield that shows you how tight those numbers are on single family investing in, in Canada. Yeah. But the numbers are so tight that it's not like we get to decide who or, or which deal is better. It's like if a deal fits the debt service coverage ratio of a lender, then the lender decides if the deal is doable. That's it. Like, and then you do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so in order, so when a lender decides if a deal is getting done in today's market, they use a debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. Not a cap rate, not a gross rent multiplier in sight, just a DSCR. I mean, cap and GRM are great for us as investors to compare properties side by side before we take them to the lenders, but the lenders, they just want to know if their rent will pay the mortgage. That's it. And how do they do that? The DSCR. 
the Dan service coverage ratio. That is my birth name. True story. That's <laughs> the government name eh, on the ID. Before we wrap this one up, Dan, give us a quick reminder of what the debt service coverage ratio is, please. Yeah. So the debt service coverage ratio is a crucial metric in real estate lending that measures a property's net operating income divided by its debt service. So can the income of the property, the net income of the property, service the debt. And so if it, and if it's higher than one, that means the property is cash flow positive. Usually you won't see a, usually the lender wants a little bit of padding there. So they'll want to see a 1.1, 1.2, 1.25 for some of these DSCR lenders that I'm seeing in the States, 1.3. If it's below one, if your debt service coverage is below one, then you're the condo investor who is losing money that I described <laughs> earlier in this episode. If you're, and so pretty good rule. I think maybe buy cash flow positive stuff that requires a debt service coverage ratio higher than one. That's what we like to do around here. And we talk a lot about the importance of debt service coverage ratio in the course and the community that we've built that I'm also slightly afraid to mention now because you called me a guru earlier and that kind of hurt my feelings. I do not want to identify as a guru. I want to identify as a cold plunging podcaster. Okay. I told you this. Yeah, that's what you are. (laughs) As long as you just shout those affirmations in the mirror. That's it every morning. Before you do your cold plunge. (laughs) Before and after. I think that's it. Thanks so much for for listening, everybody. I hope you got a ton of uh, value out of knowing and understanding what the national housing strategy is here in Canada the programs underneath it, the goals and the shortcomings as well that we're we're seeing in the market. And those shortcomings, in our opinion, are just opportunities in disguise. So go figure out how to take advantage of them. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.